Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Dallas Hartwig, and we're going to talk about his new book, The Four Seasons Solution, the groundbreaking new plan for feeling better, living well, and powering down our always-on lives. He is the co-founder of something you may have heard of called the Whole30 Program and founder of the Whole9 Lifestyle Concept. He has co-authored two New York Times bestselling books, has been on multiple appearances on the Good Morning America show, Dr. Oz, The View, and Nightline, just to name a few. He's a functional medicine practitioner and also a certified sports nutritionist and licensed physical therapist. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So you have done so much work in the arena of health, mind, body. Let's talk about this book. I really love this because this goes really into sort of ancestral patterns. And I like that you introduce it as, and what it really is, is it is this conceptual roadmap to sort of explore your own body and health and kind of become more intuitive. So what, you know, of all the things you've written and done, what inspired you to get into this foray of explaining health and wellness in this kind of way? Well, it's great. It's a great short and long question. Um, but the, the short version is basically uh, this book, this idea, this paradigm is the prequel and sort of the, the precursor to our first book, It Starts With Food. Um, and it might be a hint that the first book was called It Starts With Food, i.e. it's only the beginning. It's only the starting point. It's only one piece of the puzzle. So um, this larger kind of lifestyle paradigm has been kicking around in my head for about a decade. And it's gotten progressively clearer over time. But this, the simple and basic ideas have been there about as long as the whole 30. And um, this was a, an opportunity for me to take things that have gotten progressively more crystallized over time, put them in one place so that I personally and professionally can sort of move beyond that focus and that thing that's been nagging in my head to put it down and then I can go on to other stuff. So um, this is the, the prequel, if you will. It's really interesting, uh, some of the concepts you're talking about here, but I guess let's start off with, okay, so I mean, really, it's about themes associated with seasons. And I I would love you to kind of take us through at least a couple of them. You know, you talk about sort of like spring and dopamine and how that is in our summer. And if you could just give us a little foray into how you break down these seasons in terms of how it affects us and how we might modify our lifestyle accordingly. Yeah. One of the reasons why it took me so long to get this book kind of out um, was because there was lots of different possible ways to kind of organize it. And even though the four seasons that happen each year is what I kind of settled on, it could have been organized on many different timelines because I talk about spring, summer, fall and winter as sort of archetypes or symbols for different sets of behaviors and experiences. Um, But those things, those same behaviors and experiences happen on short timelines, like the 24-hour circadian rhythm, and on longer timelines, like the entire course of our lifetime. But so the the midpoint and the really familiar archetype really was the four seasons. So I speak about them literally and symbolically, kind of in the same breath, kind of in um, in the same sentence. So to your point, each of the seasons, both as symbols and as literal seasons, have their own experiences and neurochemical and hormonal profiles and sort of more like deep visceral sensations that go with them. And spring is an obvious one. It's um, it's the experience of 
anticipation and excitement and spontaneous energy and motivation and seeking reward and this sort of dopamine driven because dopamine, of course, is so um, so much part of our reward system to drive us out and towards something, something that is potentially rewarding. And so it is anticipatory and motivational in that sense. And spring feels the same, right? It's when we spontaneously start a new exercise program or go clean the garage or put in the garden or do spring cleaning, you know, in the yard. And so that's so much the spring experience and it's so much fun, right? The titillation of spring, the, it's the, the, best. the fun. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally addicting. And I, I, uh, I'm in it right now and I'm, I'm like feeling all those feels. Yeah. But isn't it a fun experience? Right. Um, and so I think much. one of the things that we sometimes get wrong with civilization, with the modern world is that we enjoy that fun spring experience, the dopamine stuff, the addictive stuff, the rewarding stuff. But we miss the fact that that dopamine is only that that experience is only maximally enjoyable because of its preceding stage, which is the deep restfulness of winter or on the 24 hour timeline, the deep restfulness of sleep, right? Because the experience of getting several consecutive, incredibly good nights of sleep, like maybe you might get on a camping trip or a a vacation and waking up like the second or third or fourth morning feeling like good, energetic, vibrant, um, that feeling happens on the t- on the on the daily timeline when we get deep restorative sleep. So there's all of these sort of interlinking mechanisms that each stage, each season, each time of day, and each season of our life requires us to sort of complete and do the preceding season in its entirety to fully experience each um, each stage. So spring sort of requires a deep restorative winter, and if we don't have that deep restorative winter or a deep restorative sleep, the experience of spring is muted, is blunted, is is turned down. And um, civilization has basically conditioned us to pay attention to and orient our entire lives towards the fun, rewarding experience of dopamine. And then the next successive thing, which is the stressful, productive aspect of adrenaline. And that's what the, that's the hormone that I use um, as the sort of symbol for summer. Because as we know, summer is the time that we do all the things and we go all the places and we meet all the people. And it is long days and short nights and productivity. And we are like doing the thing. And all of that is good, right? This is the time when we are most productive um, over the, you know, on, on the year timeline. It's also the sort of midday when we are alert And uh, we have all of our kind of nervous system that is like primed, operationalized, but not yet tired, right? So it's kind of the midday productivity. Um, And it's also on that longer timeline, it's also the like career and child rearing years of our lives. It's kind of from like mid 20s to 50-ish when we're like really in it and stress and adrenaline are the sort of symbolic experiences there. What I find fascinating is that dopamine is actually the biochemical precursor to adrenaline. So not only do we have a experiential sequence here, but we also have a biochemical sequence kind of overlaid onto this. So it kind of further underscores the necessity of doing each of these seasons and their behaviors in sequence, because if you don't, it mutes the next experience. 
Hopefully that makes sense. No, yeah, and I, I, lo- I love it. So let, let's continue on to fall and winter. So the summer to fall pivot is a little bit <laughs> surprising. You, you talk uh, about so- and confronting, and I, I kind of feel that <laughs> myself. Totally. Well, I think confronting is a great word, right? Because um, the spring and summer experiences, and I kind of group these things. The, the simplest way to understand this entire cycle is a cycle of expansion and contraction in equal and opposite amounts. Um, so we have the spring and summer of expansion and the fall and winter of contraction. And on the daily cycle, that's sort of mandated by the fact that the sun comes up and the sun goes down. And while we have control over our environments, you know, in this case, particularly with the artificial light, the light dark cycle really determines that expansion contraction cycle to a large degree. And the more we deviate from that with artificial light and other forms of neurological stimulation, the more kind of we place ourselves um, at peril. So as we leave summer, as we leave that stressful, productive, expansive mode, there is a pivot and use the use the word that I use in the book there, a pivot, a directional change from maximum expansion, maximum stress of summer's adrenaline, what I call chronic summer. And the pivot then is a directional change towards contraction, towards slowing down and coming home and reconnection and feeling more grounded and generosity and gratitude and a sense of belonging. And the neurotransmitter that I use as this kind of hallmark or, or symbol for fall is serotonin. And serotonin is well known for many different things, but it's, it's known um, in part for its role in enjoyment in belonging, in a sense of community and oneness and connection. And that's why um, drugs like MDMA have this profound serotonergic um, response. And you have this incredibly intense sensation of oneness and belonging and community and connection. And that sensation is available to us to a, albeit smaller degree, but in a much more healthy, natural, sustainable way, each fall, each afternoon into evening, and each fall of our lives through crafting our lives to allow for some of that contraction. And that's the biggest challenge because our entire society is built around the stimulation and stress, dopamine and adrenaline, spring and summer. And so the biggest deviation from the norm is the pivot from summer into fall. And it's a tough one. It's a very confronting one. Um, but it's also the one that is the most important to be able to do, again, on each of those different timelines, daily, annually, and on a lifetime timeline, because staying the course with society's norm gets us to really bad places. You know, every time fall rolls around, I still, even though like I've been out of school for decades, I... I, I think I get a little bit bummed at first because I'm like, I have this, I think it's just programmed in there where I'm like, oh no, I have to go back to school. And I'm like, wait, I don't. <laughs> I have to like, <laughs> right. take a minute. And then also, um, I grew up in downtown Chicago, harsh mm-hmm. winters to say the least. Mm-hmm. So I've been in California 26 years now. So I also have the same thing where I'm like, oh no, winter, no. And then I'm like, oh, that's right. I live in California. Hold on. <laughs> it's not coming so i have two moments but they happen every year it's almost like kind of still in there where i have this like oh no you know and i think just because i i love yeah spring and summer are my favorite and what's interesting so let's talk a little bit about these eating patterns because you know 
most people are in chronic summer, right? And let's talk a little right. bit about like what ancestral summer eating would have looked like versus winter. You know, you make some really interesting points about keto and where that might be appropriate in certain times of the year versus right. others. So let's get into a little bit about some of these, you know, some of these tangents on on food and lifestyle sure. in these different seasons. I find it fascinating. So, uh, you know, one of the things my first foray into ancestral health was through was through nutrition. And um, so that's kind of been the area that I have spent most of my time studying and interested in. And both of my, you know, my first two books were on food. And so that was kind of the, the, the gateway into this whole arena for me. And one of the things that was always kind of nonsensical and confusing to me, and I think probably millions of other people, is the incredible range of uh, nutrition studies done in many different, you know, study designs and all of that, that seem to come to wildly different conclusions. And most of them are short-term studies, some of them interventional, some of them observational. Um, but we come, we look at research and you can find a, a research site to support just about any dietary dogma you choose to subscribe to. And you can usually just go and select out, kind of cherry pick the research and find things that are perhaps well-designed, well-executed studies that support your point. And that at first blush gets really confusing for me and I know for a lot of other people. And so we've got all of these nutrition books written, many of which are extremely contradictory. And I think a lot of people really just don't know what to do. And so a lot of my work has been trying to be like, what's the common denominator underneath here? Like, like where's the clarity? Why the confusion? And what I started to notice over the years was that the really strong um, kind of groupings of nutritional research as far as sort of dietary organizations, whether it is a paleo approach, a primal approach, a keto approach, um, sort of a, a plant-based approach, a Mediterranean approach, they all started to look roughly like what a seasonal sort of, again, these are, these are symbols and sort of generalizations, but what a seasonal approach would look like. They were all based on, on omnivorous diets. They were all based on whole foods. They were all based on relatively low sugar, high fiber diets, et cetera, et cetera. They were largely devoid of the industrialized processed foods. And um, so when I look at the spring, summer, fall, winter patterns, and I think about our ancestral past and how we would have been opportunistic omnivores for virtually all of human history, what I start to see, and this is kind of what I wrote into the book, is that there's a lot of opportunity for many different dietary approaches, all of which are strongly supported by research, strongly supported by my clinical experience working with clients, and strongly supported just by my personal experience. And so, um, you know, I'll, if I'll just kind of loosely group them, uh, a Mediterranean diet looks a lot like a sort of transitional, moderate spring or fall kind of approach. Um, a summer diet that is naturally eating what foods are available in the summer, which is a huge variety and amount of plant foods, both vegetables and fruit. Um, a fall diet, again, looks like kind of that more like that moderate, let's say a paleo or primal approach in a more in the most general way. And then the winter, again, if we're speaking about temperate climates where it does get cold and snowy and there's not much in the way of um, fresh food available in the winter, the winter diet looks a lot like meat and fat, low carbohydrate, high fat, or even a, a ketogenic approach. And so because most of the nutrition research is short-term, um, or at least the interventional stuff is short-term um, studies, what we see is that short-term humans are incredibly good at adapting to a wide range of nutritional approaches and having really good things happen. And that's true of keto, it's true of plant-based, it's true of paleo, it's true of Mediterranean. Where we go wrong, I think, 
is where we get on, we kind of glom onto something that has worked for a short term, and we think that that is a solution long term. And when it stops working for us long term, which it always inevitably does, we do the thing harder and more extreme rather than recognizing actually there is a natural opportunity for ebb and flow, expansion, contraction, um, kind of a change built into our seasonal cycle that we've completely eliminated from the modern world. So it's a very historical ancestral approach here to say, look, what you eat, well, depending on where you live, the, the simplest heuristic is eat what's available to you in its whole food, plant and animal form, wherever you live. It's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, let's, let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about some of the, you know, you, you have the example in your book on Jill, um, and people who, a lot of triathletes, a lot of endurance athletes who skinny arms and legs, but have a pouch. Let's talk about cortisol and sleep. You know, I just think the days of people being like, I only need five hours is just has to end. <laughs> like That's just, sure. that's sleeping, not smarter. <laughs> that's, yeah, um, sure. I mean, I'm all up for eight to nine hours. Like that's, that's kind of my, my personal thing. And I, I advocate for that as well, but let's talk about sleep and the connections you have found. Sure. So um, I'll take one step back from sleep and then I'll go back to it. Um, one of the reframes that I do in the book is talking not just about sleep in terms of hours spent in bed, lights out asleep, but actually recognizing that the larger pattern there is actually time spent in light and time spent in darkness. And of course, that's not binary, bright light, you know, full darkness. In the natural world, there is all of this transition time of twilight, of sundown, sunset, um, or, or sunup, sunset. And so there's a, a much more kind of gradual, almost a sine wave that occurs there. And what we've done with the messed up modern world is we have um, a taking control of that cycle and made it much more binary on off, right? Like a light switch, like a light switch. What we've also done is we have, by virtue of spending so much of our time during the day inside, we've dramatically dimmed the amount of light that we're exposed to. And we've dramatically increased the amount of light that we're exposed to after sunset. So in the evening, we have this artificial light, whether it's coming from, you know, room lights or whether it's coming from, uh, you know, computer screens, phones, tablets, we're, get, we're being exposed to this light at an unnatural time of day. Much of that's already known. But the reframe that I put in the book is that actually honoring the transition time by starting to dim the lights earlier in the evening, not just going to the, you know, putting on blue blockers to prevent the blue wavelengths from preventing the release of melatonin, et cetera, but actually more fundamentally change in the way that we move in the evening, which is slowing down, dimming the lights. And what that does is it gives us the opportunity to have the sort of psycho-emotional contraction, not just zoning in or, or um, focusing in on the, the neurochemical part, the blue wavelength part, the actual like neurological stimulation, but actually giving us this larger, more holistic experience of slowing down and quieting ourselves. And it's one of the reasons why I also recommend not watching a psychological thriller on Netflix right before you go to bed, because you have all of this like tension and energy and stress that goes along with that. Maybe that's true for reading books. Maybe that's true for answering work emails. Maybe it's true for having intense emotional conversations with your significant other or other family members. But those are, but that's not the right time. 
you know, right, be, right before going to yeah, bed. Yeah, I, 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 I want to highlight that. I, especially for people, you know, a lot of people listening to our podcast and in general are healing from something or, you know, wanting yeah. to heal. My biggest advice is you get ditch all the freaking dramas. Get rid of them. I mean, most some people that I know that have sleeping issues are like watching Law and Order episodes before they're going to bed. Listen, that's like rape and murder. Really? You're putting that totally. in your subconscious right before you go to sleep. And in general, we all know there's been so many studies done on laughing and healing, right? So part of mine, too, is like, hey, if you are also a person that's healing from something, then it's doubly important to to sift out what you're putting into your subconscious. Yes, fully, fully agree. Um, so one more thing on the on the the sleep part, um, you know, I think I'm I'm heartened, I'm encouraged by more and more people recognizing, ooh, sleep is actually important. There's been several really great books written um, over the last few years, and a lot more people just talking about it and being aware of the importance of sleep. Um, so yes, that's important. What I also want to mention is it's not just get more sleep than you did before. It's also time your sleep so it is nice and regular so you're sleeping at roughly the same time each you know each day and that changes incrementally a few minutes per day over the course of the year as the light outside changes so again simple heuristic the closer your sleep schedule gets to what's going on with the sun outside the healthier you're going to be in general and that means a lot of sleep in the winter and not very much sleep in the summer and introducing some oscillation there i think is Again, aligning us with what's going on neurohormonally, what's going on with us emotionally, and what's going on with us experientially, right? Tapping back into that sort of the dopamine and adrenaline of spring and summer. It's normal to feel like stressed and perhaps even overstimulated in the summertime because that's part of the experience that makes the slowing down and connecting and coming home experience of fall that much more meaningful, because if we don't do, and I don't know too many people who have this experience, but if we don't ever have the like rich, intense, demanding, perhaps even stressful experience of summer, then fall is kind of flat and uninteresting. And we don't really have the like sweet relief of coming down from that stress response. So it's not to say stress is good or stress is bad. It's to say each of these experiences has its perfect place in its perfect context and when we either take one particular experience or one particular season and we stretch it out indefinitely, or we just don't do things at all, like slowing down and contracting and totally restoring ourselves like a fall and winter approach, then we get into trouble. So one of the original working titles for the book was All in Good Time as a way to express like all of these things are appropriate experiences when put into their context. Let's talk a little bit about something you mentioned in the book. You said... We were talking about how, you know, people, how ketogenic diet can be like an effective corrective strategy on, on in, in winter and some other areas. And you said, but just like plant-based diets, carb-restricted or ultra-low-carb ketogenic diets are not optimal ways to eat long-term. They are ideal for winter and winter only. Can you clarify and highlight that? Sure. Sure. So... Um, in the same way as a uh, dietary approach, like a plant-based or vegetarian approach, kind of leans towards one end of the spectrum as I see it, kind of put onto the seasonal, uh, the seasonal spectrum, um, the lower fat, higher carbohydrate, more plant-rich uh, diet of summer is, is one pole, is one extreme. And the ultra-low-carb um, diet of, or, or at least low-ish carb 
uh, diet of winter that tends to be higher in protein and especially higher in fat um, of winter is the other extreme. So it's not to say that either of those or again are good or bad. It's to say that is the the pole to which we swing in a certain context. And my experience, again, kind of working with clients is that um, people do really well on a ketogenic approach in part because the insulin sensitizing and anti-inflammatory effects of carb restriction and supplying adequate dietary protein and all of the, you know, animal sourced nutrients and supplying healthy sources of natural fats, et cetera, et cetera, all help to offset and and sort of are a therapeutic intervention to help heal from a chronic summer, high carb, low fat kind of approach. But just because it's a, a really effective therapeutic strategy doesn't mean it's optimal to kind of stay at that polar place, that extreme um, indefinitely. So so working with clients over the years, what I found is that that's a great approach for three, six months, 12 months, maybe more, depending on the person, like how much sort of healing needs to go on. But to me, I have to splice in what the nutrition research says, what my clinical experience says, and what some of the observational research says, and then kind of zooming out even farther, just sort of, sort of the anthropological observations, broadly speaking about, you know, what we know about primitive tribes, both contemporary and ancient. And as far as I know, there aren't too many uh, people groups, um, again, contemporary or in the past, that um, that eat a ketogenic or extremely carb-restricted diet year-round. And those that tend to lean that direction do so out of, of extreme sort of um, – out of lack of opportunity, effectively. And I think about the – um, the Inuit, um, where when there is plant matter, when there is something green to eat in the, in the summertime, they eat it. Um, so it's kind of an, an opportunism there. So um, in the same way as a, you know, higher carbohydrate, um, plant-rich diet, it still contains whole sources, uh, you know, whole complete protein uh, sources from animals, still contains healthy fats, and the summer is perfectly appropriate. The same is true for a ketogenic diet. What I've seen that happens with the keto diet over the course of time, which is true of all of these dietary approaches, if we get stuck in a rut, is that over the course of time, um, it starts to work less and less well. And we're either missing key nutrients or we are mismatching our um, sort of hormonal profiles on our exercise programs and our behaviors with the dietary approach. Because, for example, um, if you think about the kind of movement that would take place in a temperate climate in the wintertime, you we're from Chicago. So if you if you had to live outside in the Midwest in the wintertime, you're not doing many hours of glycolytic activity where you require a large amount of carbohydrate. What's available to you in the wintertime is meat and fat. So you're not really getting much carbohydrate supplied. So there's also this, um, this idea woven throughout the book, and it's kind of in the background. Um, but there's this idea that n not only do we have evolutionary mismatches with our diet, with what we evolved to eat, with what we have, you know, created in the modern world. But there's also mismatches between the different dietary factors. And in my experience as a clinician, working with people who are doing large amounts of glycolytic activity, either as competitive athletes or sort of just um, amateur recreational athletes, that doesn't tend to work well with people who are on extremely carb-restricted carb approaches. And I understand that and explain that as you're doing 
a high volume of activity, which is basically a summer type um, kind of way of moving on a winter type diet. And so that mismatch creates the issue that rears its ugly head when you continue that for months or years on end. It's really, yeah, no, it's very interesting. Well, I think also what you're sort of speaking to is something that actually Mark talks about sometime, which is like, it's, it's, it's about metabolic flexibility. That's really what you're advocating for is like, Hey, yeah, I'm sure you would understand if someone had a traumatic brain injury or something where staying strictly keto or an epileptic would be therapeutic and important that most of us have to be more flexible and sort of this in and out, you know, uh, my, uh, my friend coach Tara Garrison is always like her thing is do keto, not forever. Right. You know, and I kind of agree with that too. I do believe it's important to go in and out. And I like that you're, it's interesting. It's like, yeah, you're, you're on this summer plan, but you're really in winter or, right. so let's talk about, so like a winter, like if you're in a place that's super cold and snowy and all that kind of stuff are, are, is a more appropriate winter workout, like, you know, weights versus hit, right. You know, is it, is it chill walks? Like what, you know, give us a couple of things on what you might advocate in winter versus spring. Sure. So um, one of the ideas that I write into the book is is this idea of becoming a movement omnivore, mm-hmm. right? Sort of this this opportunism and this flexibility. And I totally agree with Mark's approach on the fl- like metabolic flexibility. And that, of course, comes not just from the food that we eat, but also the um, metabolic effects of our movement. And of course, there's also you know sleep and other many other I- impacts there. But in terms of movement, um, Yes, to your question about winter looks a lot more like um, resistance training, functional strength training, whether that is squats and deadlifts and presses and pull-ups and dips and all that stuff. Um, It's real-life three-dimensional stuff. It's body weight, calisthenic stuff. And it is short bouts of relatively intense, um, what could be HIIT training, sprint training, um, you know, interval training, that kind of thing. Because, A, if you live in Chicago – and there isn't a city there and you're just living there, you know, you're just living in the Midwest and it's 10,000 years ago. Um, you're not going outside and just rambling around for eight hours for fun. You're not playing catch with your friends, you know, in the forest, you're like going out, doing the thing you have to do. And then very quickly retreating back to the safe warm place with your tribe. And the concept is the same there in the winter now, which is continue to maintain your physical structure through mobility through functional movement and through infrequent high intensity bouts that might might echo the metabolic patterns of hunting from long ago but it's not the slow low intensity long duration kind of foraging type movements that we would do in the dead of summertime that take place over many many hours at a low intensity so what i find interesting is that if you think about what goes on in the summertime with movement which is Again, low intensity, long duration, um, some, you know, movements, the kind of movement that promotes fat oxidation and insulin sensitivity um, and kind of good glycemic control. You get that same effect in the wintertime, but instead you get it through carb restriction and through interval training, like HIIT training. So you're getting, so you're maintaining these positive healthy states of uh, sort of a a balanced immune system or an anti-inflammatory scenario with insulin sensitivity, but you're getting it in different ways through different methods across the course of the seasons, but you're never getting to a place where you are inflamed and insulin resistant because that only happens when we get stuck in any one of these places or when we have sort of ejected from the entire ancestral human health paradigm and we're 
existing with artificial light and disrupted circadian rhythm and anti-inflammatory low-nutrient processed foods, etc. So when we put all those pieces together, winter then, you're right, looks like some strength work, a lot more sleep. Because again, this winter is the time of deep restoration. Mm -hmm. So there is a hypertrophic effect there where we are restoring what has been broken down and eroded through the spring and summer with this excess of stress and activity. We are deeply restoring that in the winter. So we are building muscle mass, healing connective tissue, um, building and maintaining bone strength and bone density. Like this is a restorative time. And that's true for restoring our hormonal systems, for recovering from the chronic stress or the, you know, the stress of summertime. So we are having sort of a, an adrenal healing approach. Like there's all of these things. The theme is restoration. So even the training that we do do in the winter is not beating the hell out of us. It's actually deeply restorative. So that come spring, we arrive there energetic and ready to tear out into the next year. So you talk about, will you explore this? And I want to throw this out there because to me, it didn't make sense. We were talking about how this strategy of sort of early time restricted feeding, you know, eating early in the morning and fasting later in the day versus the other way that most people are doing intermittent fasting, which is fasting a lot of the day and then having this window. Now, you say that the opposite, you know, eating early in the morning, fasting later in the day is superior in terms of metabolic benefits. In my mind, though, when I think about this, I think back to a book called The, the Warrior Diet. Do you remember that one? And and what really made sense to me about that kind of in an ancestral way is I was like, really, would our ancestors be getting up and like eating food right away? Or would they be looking for food all day and then gathering by the fire and the you know, sunset time and then eating a huge meal like that makes more sense to me with right. hunter gatherers. So, so when you said that, I was like, wait, what? So right. let's talk about that. Let's get into it. Because to me, that kind of defies my ancestral thinking. Do you know what I'm I, saying? I totally do. I totally do. It's a, a totally fair question. And um, I think that the sort of probable way that our ancestors moved was probably a bit of both of those things. I think you're right that they probably didn't have, you know, their food sitting around from the night before ready to eat as soon as they rolled out of bed. So there's, I, I totally agree with that. I think the part that I often see, um, and let me just take a step back and introduce the sort of oscillatory principle here first. Because really what what I would like to see people doing is ideally, again, simple heuristics, I would like to see people eating um, only and primarily during daylight hours. So in the summertime, that's a huge feeding window. It's pretty much all of your waking hours were available for eating because, again, hunter-gatherers would have the opportunity to hunt and forage during all of those daylight hours. In the dead of winter, when the day is much, much shorter, the feeding window gets much more compressed. And when the sun's going down at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., depending on where you are, um, all of those evening hours are spent generally not foraging and possibly eating what was foraged during the day. But to your point, sitting around the sitting around the fire with people you care about and know really well in a very safe environment, connecting over food and then drifting off to sleep like you would when you're camping or something like that. So the largest principle there is eat only during daylight hours and let that oscillate across the course of the seasons. So in the same way as I wouldn't recommend keto as a long-term year-round approach. I wouldn't recommend a time-restricted feeding as a year-round, you know, year-upon-year approach. I think it's perfectly appropriate to be quite restricted in our feeding windows, 
sometimes, and to be quite liberal and open and flexible and freewheeling sometimes. So all of it's, it's, it's a very inclusive approach. The reason I made the recommendations on favoring an early eating window versus a late eating window is that um, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to explain really quantitatively because it's partly clinical experience. It's partly looking at some of the limited and imperfect animal and human studies on insulin responses, um, on glycemic control, and some of these sorts of things. And then splicing in this imagined, perhaps romanticized story about what our hunter-gatherers would have done at any given place, understanding that what our ancestors would have done would have varied radically different parts of the world, different parts of human history, different times of the year. Um, what I have also noticed, and this is kind of leaning on my clinical experience, is that people often tend to prefer or self-select a late feeding window when they have, when they're pretty hormonally and metabolically deranged, when they have a really disrupted circadian rhythm, specifically with either um, flat or mistimed cortisol spikes, cortisol, elevated cortisol. So they tend to have it be lower early in the day and have inappropriately elevated cortisol into the afternoon and evening. Because as we know, cortisol tends to give us a little bit of a preferred uh, slant towards carbohydrate. So we tend to prefer eating. We tend to prefer carbohydrate when we're in a high cortisol state. And that makes good sense. And so if I'm looking at the normal cortisol rhythm, which is um, rising uh, early in the morning, peaking kind of mid-morning and declining throughout the course of the day, so it's really low by bedtime, I think that a lot of the feeding should follow that, should follow that pattern a little bit as well. The other thing that I've noticed is that people who have been chronically stressed, who are looking for shortcuts to, um, you know, healing their metabolic derangement, healing their, their, their chronic stress, their anxiety, their insomnia, their depression, will often overlay their historical experience of staying up late, snacking, you know, for many hours after dinner, preferring high carbohydrate, high sugar foods, and they'll tend to take that rhythm that's well-established and self-select a late feeding window. And part of the reason I think that is, is that the circadian rhythm of the hormone leptin is tied to when we choose to eat. And that tends to have a little bit of inertia day upon day upon week upon month upon year. So if we're habituated to eating more later in the day, um, especially into the evening, we're going to wake up the next morning and not have a great degree of hunger. And we're going to say, oh, see, I should, you know, I should do my all my eating in the end of the day. I'll select the warrior diet. I'll do a late feeding window for my IF. And I haven't found that to be as effective as a um, fasting strategy as the earlier feeding windows. And that's somewhat subjective based on my clinical experience. But what I found is that people have a lot of resistance to changing to the eating earlier in the day, but when they do, it's profoundly effective. Okay, that's so interesting. Everyone is, should take a look at that. You know, I mean, I intermittent fast too, but I have a later eating window, not too late. But um, yeah, I mean, again, you're right. If you're on that eating window, you wake up and the last thing you can even think about for six hours is food. So it, it is something you have to pay attention to actively switching. It's going to take a minute right? And see right. how that goes. I think it's worth it. Yeah, that's, that's worth the hack. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that there, there is no perfect answer here. Right. And if, uh, you know, if I had to choose between someone having a 
12 or 14 or 16 hour feeding window year round and doing a late feeding window only in the winter, I would certainly choose the late feeding window um, for the for the time restricted feeding. But much like with the Whole30, what I'm really trying to provide here is a series of experiments for individuals mm-hmm. for the reader to say, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I can play with that. And maybe I'll say to you, maybe for the next 30 days, you work to change your feeding window to an earlier time period and just see what happens. And I guarantee you're going to hate it at first and you're going to curse me and probably give up or want to give up. (laughs) Throw throw your book off a bridge and like (laughs) hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's totally okay. I won't take it personally. Um, but see how it works for you. And after, after a few weeks, cause there was a transition period there, like everything else, a transition period of adaptation. Um, and maybe you do that incrementally. Maybe each week you move it an hour or two earlier so that over the course of, let's say two months, you've shifted it from late in the day to really early in the day. And it's a less painful transition. But if you're paying attention to what your feeding window is anyway, you could do that incrementally and that wouldn't be as painful of a transition and see how it works. And two months in, maybe you like it. Maybe you're like, actually, this sucks for all these different reasons. I'm going back the old way. And all you've done is eaten at different times a day for two months. No big loss. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things you say, like, listen, you about everyone will be about 75% of the way into seasonal eatings. If you just take a look at a few things like limiting your diet to the food available at your local farmer's market, you know, asking local farmers these questions like, Hey, what are you making now? What are you growing? What are you producing? And that sounds great and all, but let's just pretend we're living somewhere in the States or elsewhere where we don't have really a locals farmer's market or it's mm. crap, whatever. Then what should we be doing? Looking up season, like the, the vegetables of each season and then trying to mimic that by going to the grocery store and, you know, having that in our basket. It's a great question. Um, yes, maybe. Um, and, and we can make this and we can make this as simple or as complex or as contrived as we want, right? And that's not to say that any of those are right or wrong. That's just to say, if we are living somewhere with no access to local or regional seasonal food, and we're just going to the grocery store, and we're choosing from what's there, then yes, the the spring foods are anchored around whole sources of animal protein, healthy fat sources, and some of the like spring vegetables and to a lesser extent fruit, because that tends to be later in the year. So it's like all the spring greens and all the things that come up early. So it's a lot of kind of tender leafy vegetables. Um, there's not as many of the like hearty squashes and root vegetables and fruit, because that takes such a long growing period that those aren't available till later in the year. Summertime then is like free for all, right? Like it's basically everything goes, all of the vegetables and fruit are available then because they're pretty much all in season or at least close to in season in the summer, especially towards the later end of the summer. And so then the end of the summer naturally rolls into that 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 harvest and that bounty and that um, precursor to the sensation of Thanksgiving and of harvest celebrations because there's so much available. There is abundance of variety and amount available. So then from summer rolling into fall, then there is this like just enjoyment of all kinds of a you know, wide range of, of foods, especially the plant foods that are so in season there. And then going into the kind of later fall, there's more of the hard squashes, the winter squashes, the root vegetables, the late season fruits like apples and stuff like that. Um, and then it starts that the, both the carbohydrate sources and the actual sources of plant matter in general both start to taper down quite rapidly going into the winter. So that in the wintertime, really what you're looking at is 
meat and fat. Again, we're looking at a high protein or moderate protein, high fat diet with some carbohydrates from vegetables and fruit that preserve well. So you still have some of those squashes and root vegetables and, um, and fruits like apples that do keep pretty well going into the winter as some plant matter, as some, um, as some sources of carbohydrate. And we go into the winter and there is this kind of deeply restorative, kind of hearty healing experience with our food. And then spring comes around and we're really, really itching for something new, something different, some variety. And we're so grateful when the first kale comes up. Like I've got a small vegetable garden in my backyard and I was amazed to see the kale coming up through the snow this spring, like from the last fall. It's literally growing up this season through the snow. And I was so happy to have that because I was getting pretty bored of the meat and fat kind of winter food. So um, we, you can make it very neurotic and contrived, or you can just take the principles that I just out, kind of outlined and start there. And I think for most people, that's the best way to do it. And as you go farther into this and as you start to really tune into your intuitions and pay attention to what you feel, your body will start to tell you, oh, as I'm going into the fall, I want more hearty, protein and fat rich, really nutrient and calorie dense foods. And that looks like a lot, which, you know, looks a lot like what shows up on the Thanksgiving table really naturally. And so the intuitions will start to guide you as far as what you want more of and what you want less of. And that was actually what got me into this whole thing in the first place was I noticed, oh, like in January, in years past, I would be buying grapes from Chile and whatever else. And the more I paid attention to what my body wanted, the more I got anchored into that oscillatory pattern each season, the less I wanted things that were radically out of season like grapes in January. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, so let's talk about connection with people, something we've been lacking past few months, um, and in general, in our social media age. But on that note, um, and on top of that, in your journey through being a bestselling author, and obviously starting an incredible movement, Whole30, and being a practitioner, what are some things you've learned personally about yourself over these years, spiritually interconnected with people, things that, you know, have come up over time as you've gone down this journey? Yeah, it's such a great, a great question. In the book, I get what feels to me fairly vulnerable with my own kind of personal experience, which really, I think, mirrors and echoes a lot of people's, which is, um, as I got into my, you know, kind of my summer years, my my busy career driven and then later family driven years. Um, I moved fast, did lots of stuff, knew lots of people, saw lots of things, um, and had friends. I'm kind of putting up the quotey fingers, had lots of friends. Um, but really didn't feel deeply connected to myself and sort of a self-awareness peaceful way. Didn't feel deeply connected to a place. I grew up in Western Canada. I'd moved to New England. I'd moved to the Midwest, eventually ended up in Salt Lake City. And so I didn't really have a place that I felt deeply rooted to. And I also didn't feel deeply connected to the friends that I did have. They were friends. They were wonderful. I've got incredibly fantastic people in my life, but I still had this gnawing sense of loneliness, of emptiness, of being alone in the world. And the more I read stuff from... Brene Brown and Johan Hari and many other people, the more I started to recognize that like I had the same social needs as everyone else. And just because I had this 
busy life of traveling around giving seminars and all this doesn't mean that I didn't have the same basic human social needs. And like many people, I have been busy, very stimulated, very distracted, connected with people online, but lacking that more intimate, vulnerable connection with romantic partners, with close friends. And so I had to do the very same transition that I write about in the book, this pivot from summer's social mode of expansion of tons of social connections that are relatively superficial and the contraction needs to happen, the pivot to fewer people known and felt more deeply that we have these more vulnerable connections within my experience was of definitely having fewer friends that I talk to on a regular basis, spending a lot less time on social media, purposely um, driving or getting on a plane to see some of my closest, oldest friends more often, basically reprioritizing them and purposely and uncomfortably working to become more vulnerable, again, both in romantic and friend relationships. Let uh, me interject and ask you about that because, yeah. um, so uh, in my second book, Confident as Fuck, I talk about, you know, this being, it's a, it's a super pitfall of alphas often, male and females is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we look at expressing vulnerability or being vulnerable as weakness. Um, it's, it's not true. It's just something that is in us and is often sort of that life journey that you get to where you realize that is kind of the ultimate in authenticity instead of hiding and not expressing these emotions that we're having. Um, it's especially harder for guys in the way that our society has brought you up. So how did you how did you start to overcome that? Was it just about starting to actually take that first step and being open and speaking something that was uncomfortable initially for you to speak, um, you know, in, in a close relationship of any kind? Like, tell us a little bit about like, yeah. where did you start when you realized you needed to open up more? Yeah, it was, um, I'd be lying if I said it was this, you know, flash realization and everything changed. It's really been a a long, slow, incremental journey for me. And to your point, the sort of patriarchal soup that we grow up in trains people, but men in particular, to um, withhold emotion, to not, not just not show it, but not even to feel it. So many men find themselves um, emotionally numb, unable to access a wide range of emotions. And the research on emotion shows that if we work to numb emotions, we don't just numb one selectively, we basically numb all of them. So my experience in years past was of being very emotionally numb. And that made me unable to show up um, in a supportive, vulnerable way, romantically, sexually, spiritually. It made it hard for me to be really present to life experiences, both the highs and the lows. And so my process has been peeling off layers of the onion bit by bit in terrifying, awkward, clumsy ways over the years. And it's, it's many it's terrifying. Honestly, I've, I've hundred percent. I have like in the moments where I've had to move forward in vulnerability, like there has been lots of like me breaking down crying in that moment. Cause it, it that was more frightening almost than like, you know what I mean? Than, than sure. almost anything where I'm normally like a fearless person. And But I will say this, it has made my life and my relationships and my connections with people, gosh, you know, no woulda, coulda, shoulda is right, but I wish I could have gone back and taught myself this 20 years ago. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, and it's interesting you should say that. I'm, I'm 41 and I'm having much the same sensation. Like, I wish I knew this a long time ago. And I think 
that's what happens to a lot of people going through kind of personal growth, transformational journeys. And I think that's actually the way it's supposed to be. Yep. So here's my logic is that if you don't leave home and get lost, you never get to have the experience of the relief and the beautiful heartwarming experience of coming home and finding that belonging again. And so much of what we do in our, the summer of our lives is that outward looking, expansive, stress, productive um, kind of mode that then makes way for us to have the coming home and reconnected experience. And in the same way as coming home at the end of the day can be a very settling, peaceful, relaxing kind of homecoming experience, we can have that each fall as we're spending more time, we're reconnecting with our place and with our closest people. And we can have that in the fall of our lives. And I'm kind of getting to an age where I'm thinking about what is the next season of my life hold. And so I'm thinking a lot more about slowing down, reconnection, um, you know, gratitude, vulnerability, being present, and much many of those serotonin type experiences. So I think it's actually normal to start thinking about some of those things as you near some of the transitions of those life stages, because I think it would actually be inappropriate and out of place for us to think about this when we were 20. Not that it shouldn't matter, not that we shouldn't care about it at all, but for it to be such a focal point, um, I think it would actually be out of place. So I think it's normal to wander about, get lost, and find our way back home. Really well said. So tell us, we can go to Dallas Hartwig, H-A-R-T-W-I-G.com to find out everything about you. And of course, your book for Season Solution is on Amazon. And also you can get it through the website and elsewhere. Where, what's, what's next for you? What, what you got going on this year? I mean, I know we're all in this like sort of, you know, unknown, unknown arena. What are, what are you excited about for your future? Um, I'm terrified for my future, um, <laughs> which, which is the short answer because I, the answer is I don't know what's next for me. And for many years, I knew what was next. I knew where I was going and knew what the next kind of focus was. And that is no longer true for me. And I'm in this very, open unknown space and that's kind um, of fun really, that's my favorite it is kind place. of fun i've learned it is, to, i've learned it to be my favorite place even though it used to be the scariest place but i feel like so many incredible possibilities are stewing in that unknown that it feels like i i don't know i get kind of excited about it now for sure for sure and so i'm i'm not sure i have this i wouldn't have said this if my good friend mark groves had not kind of publicly thrown me under the bus a few months ago um <laughs> where he basically was like, hey, so Dallas, we were on stage together in front of a big crowd. And he said, um, so Dallas, you were telling me in private conversation a few days ago what you were thinking about kind of doing next. And I was like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, this is what you're doing? But I basically, he basically forced me to admit on stage um, that I'm interested in doing more, more talking and writing about this um, kind of theme of relational health, emotional health, what masculinity means, how to be a man in the modern world, what that means in terms of patriarchy and feminism. And um, it's not because I think I have answers because I don't, I have a lot of questions, but so does everyone else in particular men like me who don't know how to find their way through that space. And so my, my direction, then I have a hunch is in that direction, but I don't know where exactly that takes me. And so it is exciting and terrifying all at the same time. I love it. And you should, because we need more books like that for men. Women like myself, there's a million, you know what I mean? 
yeah. Korean female authors on this topic. And in general, there's been a few great ones over the years uh, for men. But yeah, it's time for another look at it. And with your um, and you know, it, and interesting and evaluated, we could, this could be a whole another podcast. But the the primal connection, the primal differences and polarizations of, of both of the sexes and how those can interplay. And with your with your ancestral knowledge and your health knowledge, I can only imagine this being a, a, a knockout project. So I'm looking forward to seeing that at some point, whenever that gets rolling. But tell us, uh, is the best way to find you on your website? Are you most active on any particular social media platform or... Best way to find um, find me and contact me is through the website, um, and I've got an email newsletter and all that there. Um, the social media platform, really, the only one I'm really active on is Instagram, and that's less and less true over time. Um, so I'm, you know, like many, uh, you know, authors and, and influencers, trying to figure out how to balance this the demand for producing content and, um, and kind of being present on social media while also living a healthy life. So there's an authenticity question there for me that I'm grappling with. Um, but Instagram is the place for now. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Anything you'd like to leave with our audience on this topic? Um, man, this is such a, like, it's such a, you know, kind of a big meaty topic. Um, I think the thing that I would say, and I say this towards the end of the book, there's no wrong way to do this thing. This is your journey. This is your process. This is your living experiment, which happens to be the name of my podcast. Um, But this is your thing. And you can make transitions and changes as quickly or as slowly as suits you. And um, the journey is yours. And I applaud the fact that you're on the journey already. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and everyone else. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners. Did you know that Primal Kitchen Collagen Peptides help support hair, skin, and nails? Well, we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate, from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes and more. Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.